Well, I'm glad those of you that brave the cold are here because the title of our sermon is The Secret to Success in 2022. So if they're not here, they're not going to succeed. So you guys will have, let's just, let's track that over the year and see if it's true. And, uh, you know, New Year's sermons are interesting because we're not really in a series and I couldn't decide on which text, so I chose two. Matthew 10, 34 to 39, and Philippians 4, 11 to 13. So it's like an hour-long sermon instead of 230, you know. And I did that because I thought that would give the temperature a chance to get up to like 19. So no, for those of you that are new, it's still just a 45-minute sermon, maybe 35. These are tough passages. At first glance, you may wonder why both of them. Uh, Two weeks ago, I preached from Philippians 4. And uh, really began this thought of Paul. But also, both of these um, passages have been really ruminating in my heart for weeks. Uh, In fact, we were going through, um, what was the book we went through? (laughs) With Dane. Gentle and lowly. And he had an entire lesson on uh, Matthew 10, verse 37. And uh, that really stirred in me something. And so I began just reading that passage and meditating on it since then. And so that's been there. And then Philippians also. And so we'll read them together. We won't exhaust either one of them, but we'll see how they overlap and how they offer us a glimpse of success in 2022. So I'll start with the Philippians passage, and then we'll move over to the Matthew passage. Philippians 4, uh, verses 11 to 13. Actually, I'm going to start at verse 10. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and how I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And then in Matthew 10, uh, Jesus is giving instruction to his apostles, explaining what to do when they have fear, when people will persecute them. And he, he has these very famous words starting in 34. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for your hard words because we trust you and we know that you have a meaning in these passages that when understood and when we are found in you, actually bring peace. So I pray, Holy Spirit, you would open our eyes to see the beauty of centering our life on you as we move into a new year. Amen. Last year was a little bit of an anomaly, but two years ago I did a little series for, uh, I thought, hey, I love New Year sermons so much. I did four called The New Year, The Real You, 
And uh, I was just thinking about that because preaching a New Year's sermon is kind of both interesting and strange. I don't know if you remember what happened just a few days before that first sermon. That was January the 5th, 2020. Just a few days earlier, scientists were like naming a, a virus COVID-19. And so little did I know in that sermon series that we would go through these that last two years that I would say we will all remember for the rest of our lives. And uh, much like 9-11 changed everything, this pandemic has changed everything in certain ways. So here we are, 2022. I'm pretty sure most pastors are not preaching these optimistic sermons, right? We're like, I think it's going to be a good year, but I can't promise you that. And as I approached that, I just thought of what Paul teaches in Philippians and how beautiful it is. That he knows how to abound and he knows how to be in need. Uh, another way you might say that, he knows how to fa face both death and resurrection. He has a secret. In fact, we'll talk about it later, but earlier in the letter, famously he says, as he's in prison, wondering whether he'll ever get out, wondering if he'll see these people whom he's writing this letter to ever again, and he says, to live is Christ, to die is gain. And so we come into this year, I think all of us, if we're honest, with fear and trepidation and hope, what, what's in store for us. And I think that this, these passages can bring us the secret that is centering our lives on Jesus. Now, before I move into the main concepts of the, of the sermon, I just want you to know that the culture, even the Christian culture, reinterprets these, these word, the wording in these verses. I think, for example, in the Philippians 4 verse, most Christians would say something like this, in any circumstance, I know how to abound. I will find a way to abound no matter how bad it gets. That's a common message in our culture. Whereas Paul says, no, I may abound, I may be in need, but I know contentment in Christ. And then even more uh, prevalent in our Christian culture is Rather than taking our cross up and following Jesus where he's going, I feel like oftentimes I'm guilty of and many of us can be guilty of going where we're going and then saying, Jesus, will you bring your cross and follow me? And so the hope this morning is that we would uh, sort of fight these tendencies and repent of them. And here's our proposition for our conversation today. When we love Jesus more than anything else, we get everything else thrown in. Um, our hearts default to loving things, loving people, loving this world, and Jesus is sort of peripheral. And what we're going to learn is that in that situation, we're losing both the things we think we love and we're losing Jesus. And what he's promising in these passages that I hope to uncover for us is that when we love Jesus more than anything, we get Jesus and we get the things we love, the true things. So that's our discussion this morning. Our outline would be something like this. The reason that Jesus, we are to love Jesus more than anything or that he's more lovely than anything. The problem or the cost. And then finally the cure. So the reason. Uh, what I love about the Bible so much is it gives us reasons. Paul constantly tells truth and then reasons it for us. I think of just the scripture from Isaiah, come now, let us reason together. Though our sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. God, when he communicates to his people through the scripture, through the, his Holy Spirit, 
gives us reasons for things. He doesn't just say blindly hear this and do this. He says, though he certainly could tell us to do that, he also tells us why he's saying these theological uh, reasons. And, and for us, the reason that Jesus is to be loved more than anything is because it's true. I mean, <laughs> like that's, that's the reason. Like it's, he's at the center uh, in fact, in Philippians, we, we just a few ver- chapters earlier, Paul explains how Jesus came to earth and uh, took on the form of a man and, and died on a cross. And, and now when he returns, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is the Lord. We will not just say those words, but we will believe and, and confess them. If we see Jesus, we're not going to go, great, you're here. Now here's what I need. We're going to go... You're everything. And the good news for us as believers is he's with us at hand. Philippians 4 already told us that. Also in the Matthew 10 passage, we're told that he is where life is to be found. If we lose our life for his sake, we will actually find real life. Uh, So Jesus is the center. Uh, This is a silly way to remember this. But one of my favorite stories from... Sunday school lessons is the little boy where the teacher says, uh, and I've probably used this before, just I love this. Teacher says, okay, kids, early in her lesson, you know those little animals that jump on trees and houses and have bushy tails? What are those called? And that little boy that rose his hand said, I want to say squirrel, but it's probably Jesus. Uh, You just have to throw in those. He's not wrong, by the way. Right, Because in Colossians, Paul tells us, Jesus made everything. Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. Jesus redeemed us. I mean, he's everything. And so our, our goal in, in our faith this side of heaven is to come back to that truth over and over again. We, the reason we put Jesus at the center is not because someone told us to. It's not because it seems like a good idea. It's because it is the way the universe works. And when we are in line with that reality, we flourish. And when we are not in line with that reality, we don't flourish. Now, so often with phrases like that with pastors, a lot of people are like, is he talking about being a Christian or not being a Christian? Well, sort of and sort of not. I'll get to it at the end. Yes, we need to always ask. Like, are, I'm always wanting to know, like, encourage us to ask the question, are we Christians? Are we but that's not what we're talking about right now. Because Jesus is talking to apostles and Paul's talking to the church. As believers, we can be Christians and yet attempting to live our lives apart from Jesus at the center, which is where the problems come. So the reason he is the secret is because he's at the center. Paul found that secret. And now let's talk about the problem that kind of drives us to under, need to understand it more. There's this apparent problem, um, and I, I wish I could unpack Matthew 10 perfectly. I'm going to do my best to get, solve some of its major problems. But the first thing that's shocking in the Matthew passage is Jesus says, don't think I came to bring peace, I brought a sword. I think that's a rhetorical device. Do we think Jesus is saying, never mind all the prophecies and never mind all the things we talk about peace? No. What he's doing is he's capturing the audience's attention. What is he saying? Well, 
there is a problem with many of our views of peace. Remember in Jeremiah, the, uh, the false prophets would walk around saying peace, peace, when there was no peace. And so what Jesus is explaining to his apostles and all of those who would come after them, including us, is that when we walk with Jesus and we move into our normal daily lives as Christians, there will be disruption. There will be a sword. Now, the sword is not our sword. It's, you know, when Peter pulls out his own whatever that sword was, that dagger, and cuts the ear off in the garden, Jesus leans down and picks the ear up and heals the the centurion, doesn't he? No, it's not our sword. I'm not bringing out my personality, my vendettas, my frustrations. Jesus' sword. That is the sword of coming in and, and acknowledging there are problems in our world. Um, if you want just a silly, I, I don't have like perfect examples, but just think of like um, if you work for a company that makes the space shuttle and you know there's a design that's wrong, but it's going to set everybody back and the launch will be, someone's got to speak the truth, don't they? And so we all love the documentaries about how the Titanic crash, how the Challenger go down, why did that system fail? We love those post-event. And we all nod and think, I would have totally said it if I were there. The truth is, we're all there every day, watching sin and problems course its way through families and organizations, our own hearts, and we're saying peace, peace, because of the, of the cost. And what's the cost? In this culture that Jesus is speaking to, your family was everything, honor. It's very hard for our modern culture to empathize with that. We can hear it, we can act, we can think about it. I think they managed up if you will, using a business term. And our culture manages down. So I think our present culture, yeah, my dad and I don't talk. Or, yeah, my mom, especially mother-in-laws that's in here. Uh, we, I'm not saying everybody doesn't value these relationships. I'm just saying it doesn't, it doesn't jar us. Think of the prodigal son story. Like when Jesus writes that, makes up that story, his audience is going, no one would ever, ever do that. Our culture reads that and goes, you know, maybe there was a good business opportunity, you know. So we need to recognize that this is profound. That to walk into your household as a Christ follower could create tension. Especially if there were assumptions made that you would behave a certain way and yet your convictions went another way. I think in our modern era you might just think about the way we really parent our children. I think we have, we make idols of our children in our culture. Um, and again, remember the premise, an idol you're not actually loving. It's there to protect you. I think our culture, and we're all, and I'm equally guilty, so children cover your ears, bakers, but we're all really guilty of like just wanting to do everything we can for our children at every turn to appease our deep sense that something's wrong. We'll, go, we'll, we'll travel, we'll, we'll spend untold amounts of money, we'll, we'll, we'll throw everything at them. Even if we're using discipline to guide them into the greatest universities, there's this sense in which the downline determines and reveals who I really am. And I think secretly a lot of parents in our culture are simply afraid 
of being found wanting. And so it's just far easier to pour out stuff on our children. Hoping that one day they'll go, well, dad did give me this amount of money. Dad did do this for me. Dad did show up to these things or took me to these places. I'm not saying those things are wrong. What I'm saying is, can you imagine in a culture that we're in saying no to a child? Like that, we don't need that or we're not going to do that. But not because you're trying to promote their future for your glory, but because you really think it's not healthy for them. And you know that they're going to go to school and be different. And so we live in this kind of situation where our actual faith can be challenged in those moments. And what I think Jesus is saying about a sword is we've had our children get really angry at us. And I feel like a parent, like I'm worthless. Have you ever felt that way as parents? When my child's mad at me, I feel worthless, which is the real problem. So I want to get to the real problem that Jesus is getting at. The real problem in Matthew 10 of of being a believer, a follower of Christ in your family, in your context, is when you go along with things that aren't good and aren't in line with Christ, you're basically perpetuating a problem we all have, and that is the problem of a cross. We all have a cross. Have you ever heard the phrase, he had a cross, that's his cross to bear? I've said that, you've said that. That's not what it means. I don't think that's what it means. I don't think Jesus is saying, take up your cross I, as in, take up that one affliction you have that's so unique to you. Now, a lot of people have done the um, work where they say, hey, he wasn't talking about his cross. Right? Have you heard that teaching? Because Jesus hasn't died on the cross. I used to, I've, I've gone through that spectrum myself. Wow, take up your cross, like Jesus' cross. And then you get to that teaching of like, wait a minute, he hadn't been crucified yet, so it can't mean that. Well, now I'm back on the other side of that to say, of course, of course Jesus is saying that cross in a way. Because the cross, three years out, he's three years removed from his crucifixion, has a cultural weight to it that says this, if you have one, you're bad. If you have a cross to bear, like you're on the outside. You're basically being crucified as a criminal. And what he's implying is every one of us was born with this. Right? We were all born with this deep, deep longing for God. We were all knitted together with the need, excuse me, for God. But yet, when we were born, we were born into sin and alienated from God. And almost all of our existence has been an attempt to cover the cross. So imagine, like, having a cross and you're like a scarecrow. Like, you're just trying to mask it. And you're just walking around your life like this. Like, we're trying to, or you have a a tattoo that says you're fallen and we want to cover it up and just get through life and pretend everything's fine. And if that's true... Then we go to our family and our, or any organization or any system like Matthew 10, and we actually are following Jesus, and there's going to be some rupture, isn't there? There's going to be some tension. And when that tension arises, we're going to feel like, oh, no, I'm going to be exposed. Like, for me, in this situation, I'll be exposed, and so we often shut our mouths. One way this plays out over and over in our, my life, whether it's in arguments or whatever, 
is if, we, if you've ever argued on the basis of Jesus, like, we shouldn't do this. Have you ever said that to someone? Like, it's not healthy for us to do this. And then the response is, will you do it? Have you ever heard that argument? I get that quite often. I give it too, though. Will you do it? Will you do it? And what, what Jesus is saying is, yeah, I do. That's my cross. So let's get our crosses together and follow Jesus, right? That's what he's teaching. I was talking to a friend the other day who avoids Christian language at all costs. He um, grew up through Christian worship and church and vernacular and, and now really does a really good job of avoiding biblical language to explain things. That's just one of his uh, interesting um, academic involvements. And so we were talking and he kept saying the word fear. And I said, well, what are you afraid of? And he said, of being naked and ashamed. But I couldn't believe he said it because he heard what he just said. I'm afraid of exposure. I'm afraid of what Adam, Adam and Eve felt instantly after eating the fruit. And I think my hope for all of us to move into the rest of this conversation is that you will begin to at least intellectually believe that most of what we do on a daily basis is we seek to cover up the things that can expose our shame and make us feel naked. And one of the easiest ways to do that is to say peace, peace when there is no peace. Because to actually name there's a problem here invites scrutiny back at us, doesn't it? And that's what I'm terrified of. So what's the cure? It's our last point. Are you all glad? Well, the cure, Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me. Where is he going? Now, I want you to hear what he's saying. Take up your cross. Okay, I'm in a situation where I'm seeing something unrighteous happening. And in some ways, I'm, I'm with it. If I name that situation, whether it's just a little argument or whether it's like Enron, whatever it is, if I name it, I know that I'm going to be injured. But you know what? I'm going to take that fear of shame, that fear of exposure. That's my cross because it's true. I'm going to follow Jesus to my crucifixion. And so I got this cross, I'm walking, I'm on this trek, and what are you thinking about if you're with me? You're thinking, what's it going to be like? The closer you get, you're going up that hill, you know what they do up there, you've heard the yells, you've watched it a few times, and, and, and as you're making your way, you're, but you know what, I deserve it. Like, I was born with this, it's true, and you get all the way to the foot of the cross, or at the top of the hill with your cross, and you look up and there's a man hanging there, bleeding. And you're not going to go up on that cross. You're laying yours down and you're sitting there in awe that he went up for you, that he went ahead of you. And he is saying, I have taken all of your sins on, substituted myself for you. Which is exactly what Paul is saying in Philippians 2 when he says, have the mindset of Jesus who came in your stead, took on your sin, died in your place, he arose again, and when he returns, we will kneel and bow and praise, which we do currently as we wait for his return. 
And of course, in the Matthew passage, it's exactly what Jesus is saying when he says, take up your cross and follow me. For whoever gives up their life, excuse me, for whoever finds his life will lose it. That's the person who just stays in the situation protecting themselves. It's not going to go well. But whoever loses his life, takes up the cross, walks up the mountain, gets up there for his sake, will find life. Because when you get there, what you find is a Savior who died for you. A Savior who then, you find out three days later in the empty tomb, rose for you. And then a little bit after that, walks up to you and you are clinging to him. And he tells you he is going to ascend into heaven and send his spirit into your soul. You are free. That's the gospel. And so our job is not to simply mentally acquiesce to that reality and go, yes, yes, dear brother Ryan, that is what I believe. But rather, as you're facing the turmoil of your daily life, is it impacting you? Because if it's not, we have a disconnect. So, we're going to end with our application. And that is this. Have you ever come to this cross? Have you ever come to the place in your life where you realized nothing in my hand I bring? There's nothing. Remember in Philippians 3 where, where Paul says, I used to have, and he unrolls the scroll. I'm making that part up. And it has like the date of his circumcision and his tribe and his religious affiliation. And he says, these were the ways I used to find value. But now it's only being found in Christ. And I asked recently, what's on your list? For me, I have, my, I have a master's in divinity. Or I'm a pastor. I mean, I have a list of things. I haven't done this in this long. Or I can, I can do that. Or I have this kind of money or this kind of, like what's on your list that makes you feel safe and able to face the day? Because what the cross tells us to do is strip it and go, only Jesus. And let me tell you, it's terrifying. You will feel like you're dying when you come to the cross. Because all of a sudden, everything we think defines us is rubbish. Have you ever had that happen? In 1 Corinthians, Paul says this, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. Is it folly? Is what I'm saying sounding like folly? Be careful. You say, no, no, it, it doesn't sound like folly to me, but I'm just not doing it right now, which is the next question. Okay, if you've come to the cross, have you been there lately? What are your current fears? What are your current impulses? What are your current methods of insulating yourself from the struggles and the pains of this life? And if you're not willing to do it now, you really need to ask the question, have I ever come to the cross? Now, the good news is, for many of us, we, do, we are prone to wander. We're prone to leave the God we love. We, we, we have come to the cross. We have been converted. We know Jesus is in us, but we're in these seasons of struggle. And the good news there is we come back to the cross freshly again. Daily, as Martin Luther encouraged us at the first of his theses. So my goal for all of us this New Year's is that we would really 
take stock and say, is Jesus my source of life? If he's not, come to the cross. Come to him and pray, Lord, I ask for your help. I confess that I evaluate myself on my safety, my security, my income, my, the peace in my home or the lack of or how I'm doing in the world or my company or just any litany of things that we struggle with and bring those to him, not fearing that you'll lose them like sand between the fingers, but remember the proposition of this sermon that when we come to Jesus in that way and his promises, we will be dwelling in him He will open our eyes to his love, and then we will actually be able to love and cherish the things that are worthy around us. Now I can love my wife and my children and my spouse and my, you know, occupation in this situation. Now I can move into these places for his glory and not for my own. That's what Paul's talking about in Philippians 4. That's what Jesus is talking about in Matthew 10. Paul says this. In any and every circumstance, I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. And I love it because this is his thank you note. Like, do you all write thank you notes? When I write thank you notes, it's just like, thank you. Right? He's like, thank you. I mean, that you finally gave me, you know. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, and now at length you have finally revived your, you know, concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Well, see, the Philippians were not sure about Paul. He was in jail. So they kind of like, I think he's our guy. And, at the, and then he's, but he's saying, saying to them this. He gives them this powerful secret right at the end of this letter. And it's simply this. I do everything by the strength in me that is Jesus. He doesn't mean when I lay down and try to bench press 300 pounds, I say this prayer. He means, I have one energy source, Jesus. When I deviate from him, I repent and come back. And that's the cross. And when I come to that place over and over again, all of a sudden I'm able to relate to my life in a far more glorious way. I will know how to have Jesus at the center of everything. And whether 2022 is an amazing year for you, or whether it's the hardest year for you, with Paul, next year we would look back and say, even though I abounded, Jesus was really my source. Or even though it went as bad as it could ever be, Jesus was really my power source. And we'll rejoice. To live as Christ, to die as gain. Let's pray. Father, we praise you that you've given us this gospel. That no matter what happens this coming year, no matter how good or how bad by our earthly standards, we have the secret that your spirit lives in your people, uniting us to you. And Lord, we know that in a few minutes we'll take a meal, a communion meal that you have left for us to be reminded that we long for your return, to make all things sad untrue. And I pray that this gospel truth would free us to be your disciples, to go through life not seeking security or safety, but seeking glory and righteousness for your sake with your power. In your name we pray, amen.